Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. Hi, I'm Jeremy, and with Terry, we're the co-CEOs of Harvest Earnings. And you can be a fly on the wall as we talk about business practices we love and even more fun the ones we don't. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, Terry. How are you? I'm good. Uh, so last week, Lily and I went to a Galentine event at our local bookstore. And, um, you know, while I was browsing with my lovely glass of Veuve Clicquot, uh, I, I noticed a section uh, for high school students. So all of the books that like AP English requires them to read or whatever. And 1984 was in there. And I thought, you know, I haven't read that in a very long time. I don't remember it all that well. I did go see the Broadway play, which was horrifying, but thought, you know, I should reread 1984. So I actually sort of read it in, in double speed, which is ironic because of course, double think is a term that George Orwell uses in the book. Um, and I was reminded then, of course, of groupthink, which then reminded me of a chapter in our book, which isn't quite <laughs> following the synapses. Um, uh, anyway, so it reminded me of a chapter in our book, which isn't quite this, but it's um, the five surprising words that keep a good executive from being great. I want everyone on board. And I think if there's one thing that is the cause of most poor decision-making in uh, corporate America, this is probably it. And um, so I think we should talk about a couple of things related to groupthink and I want everyone on board because there's a couple of different ways that this results in bad decisions. The first way is it gives, if everyone has to be on board, it gives everyone veto power. Yeah. Everyone. And so as, as we see all the time, um, people have, they have different motivations. They have different predilections. They see things differently. They have different levels of expertise. Well, and when I talk about different motivations, so if a CEO proposes a reorganization that might make perfect sense, although we we're not huge fans of reorganization because it doesn't generally do a lot. Um, and if my um, management world is suddenly going to shrink, well, I might be inclined to be more opposed than not, even if it makes sense. Um, and I might not even be aware of why I'm doing this. I probably am in that case. But lots of times, you know, we have these thoughts that are subconscious, not unconscious, because that's a whole <laughs> different level. Um, but we see this all the time. Yeah, totally agree. And, and not only does it give everybody the veto power, but who's the most likely to use it? It's the person who's most resistant to change. So this has this very powerful effect of maintaining the status quo. Because the person who's most resistant for some of the reasons you said, or just it's their natural personality or, or whatever, um, can veto something and keep the status quo. So that is a big problem. Then there's the other kind of problem. Oh, you know, I should say something else first. No, go ahead. 
Well, I was going to remind you of a day we were uh, sitting in a conference room with the CEO and his direct reports. They were not yet a client. They were going to be a client. Um, and the CEO clearly wanted to do this, but he did want his team on board. And very unusually, he had us stay in the room when he went around and did the, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Which, which is, which we should talk about in a second as well. But um, everybody's like, oh, it sounds great. It sounds great. It sounds great. And we had put a big number um, that they could, uh, a big earnings number for them out of the project that we were going to do with them based on our track record. It was, I mean, we, we were confident. Fact-based and the CEO was confident too. So everybody's on board. And then he gets to one guy who says, well, I don't think it's the right time. Now, oftentimes that's the end of it, right? Somebody else goes, yeah, maybe it's not the right time because we've done all these other things and everybody's tired and busy and maybe it's not, maybe we should do it in a few months. And oftentimes that does, that changes the tide and reverses a decision. But unusually in this case, the CEO pushed back and, and very publicly um, and said, well, you know, he referenced the number and said, you know, we need these earnings. We need them now. Do you have a different way of coming up with these earnings if this isn't the right time? And the guy did not. <laughs> and yeah. the project continued. But it is very unusual to get pushback in that situation, even from the top of the house. Oh, absolutely. Well, and, you know, as we were talking the other day, I mean, this was their sales guy. And, you know, often the CEO doesn't want to, you know, make their top revenue getter feel bad or feel disenfranchised or not feel respected. And so they they back off. Revenue getter. That's a new one. Yeah. <laughs> Producer is more commonly used. Yeah, or generator. <laughs> yes, generator. Revenue <laughs> getter. Uh, uh, you know, part of this comes, I mean, I remember since we've been doing this now a long time, back in the 80s, for example, that a lot of CEOs were getting heralded because they were command and control kinds of people. And they didn't want their whole team on board. They didn't really care who was on board. It was, um, what's the expression uh, the U.S. bank CEO used to use? Get on the bus. Oh, catch right. right, catch the vision or catch the bus <laughs> kind, kind of people. Mac Welch had some of this. Uh, I once worked for a woman, as you know, who loved to give clients a book about Chainsaw Al because she really want, liked this image of Al Dunlop being, I'll go in there by myself and just chop everything out. Wasn't he disgraced at some point? He was. Yeah, there was an, an accounting scandal. We were oh, really, my. Yeah, he lied about <laughs> how they booked their revenues. So um, uh, this, this, <laughs> this view of command and control then had a backlash because obviously it, it doesn't utilize the full talent of an executive team or a company. If you just have one person who says, I'm just making all the decisions. So boards started looking for a different kind of leader and books started being written about and consultants started talking about leaders who are collaborative and in, believed in teamwork and weren't just command and control. And that was great. That made a lot of sense. 
but it feels to me like the pendulum has now just swung a little too far where people want unanimity and to really avoid conflict. And that's, yeah, that's what we're addressing here. It's, it's, we love collaboration, but it's gotta be the right kind. Sorry. <laughs> and, um, one ironic thing is it, they didn't want command and control, but it still often leaves the decision in one person's hands. It's just not necessarily the CEO. It's somebody right. on their team who says, uh -uh, not, not now or yeah. not ever or whatever. And when people hear this from us, I want everyone on board is bad. They think, oh, well, you guys aren't you know, supportive of collaboration, which of course we very much are. It's a huge part of, of what we do with companies in our project. But it's collaboration that is 100% fact-based, and it's the people who are relevant to a decision weighing in. So if an idea has a legal ramification, you get the uh, buy-in from your chief legal counsel. But you don't ask that chief legal counsel how she feels about you know, whether it's a good marketing idea, because that's not her expertise. So you ask people to support with facts their relevant area contributing to the decision of whether or not to do something. And that's huge and powerful. I think lots of uh, executive teams or, you know, um, it, it could be a supervisor and the people they're supervising, but groups <laughs> think they are already very fact-based and analytical because there's a million spreadsheets created in every big company. There's all kinds of analyses being done. But I don't think people realize how often decisions are being made without real facts about that decision. Because it's hard to get those facts on the table often. Like some senior, respected, experienced executive says, you know, I don't think this is going to have effect A. I think it's going to have effect B. And it's very hard for their peers, certainly really hard for their subordinates, and even hard for their boss often to sort of publicly call them out and ask, how do you know that? Because, you know, there, there, there is certainly the phenomenon of, oh, well, we did that 20 years ago. Well, you know, we did, you've heard me tell this story many times. <laughs> we, we were working with utility and somebody said that we, we've already tried that, took the idea off the table. And because in our process, we don't let that go. We, we did say, well, when? And it was 17 years before. Now yeah. things move slowly in the world of utilities, but 17 years, come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and so that kind of behavior means that you you sit there and everyone's going okay if, if this experienced person whom we respect says shares an opinion that we're going to treat it as a fact and there have been so many times when we've pressed people or people within the company have got you've been given sort of the permission to challenge they discover that the facts are different and even the person who had that opinion goes oh you know i didn't realize that well if that's the case then now i I have a different opinion. Yeah. So well, you, you need to go ahead. Well, I was, we should probably talk about the other problem yeah. that results from this uh, more, more the traditional we 
talked about, I want everyone on board, giving everybody veto power. But the traditional group think is, is not that. The traditional group think is go along to get along. Right, right, right. Or when we did a project in Minneapolis, we learned all about Minnesota nice. You know, this, and, and I know it's because you thought originally it's because Midwesterners were nice. And yes, you all are, but. <laughs> yes, we are. It turns, not, it turns out that's not what that meant. I don't think that phrase meant what you thought it meant. <laughs> Listeners who are fans of Princess Bride, the Princess Bride. What it meant was essentially everybody just not, a culture gets developed where people want to agree with other people where they don't want to have open conflict. So maybe the boss suggests something and everybody goes, yeah, okay, yeah, we should do that. So it is the appearance of unanimity. And now the decision goes forward. But in fact, the boss hasn't avoided conflict. They've only avoided conflict in the room at the moment. How many times have we heard people leave the room and go, oh my God, I can't believe what we just agreed to. Or worse, six months later, when the thing didn't work, I can't believe what they agreed to. What do you mean they? You were in the room. But yeah. there's this feeling of we're all, you know, we're, we're, we're going to be a team. We're all going to take the hill together. And it's my job to support where, whatever way I think that the wind is blowing. So there's a couple of solutions. I'm going to talk about one. I'm going to ask you to talk about the other one. <laughs> Um, so the first one is one we, we talk about often is that is the obligation to dissent. So in, and leaders have to really encourage this, right? Not just, um, you can, if you want, it's there, there should be sort of a mandate, um, almost like a debate teams where you have to take a position and support it. I mean, maybe that's a step too far for many decisions, but for some decisions, it's not. So somebody needs to throw out um, the cons. Somebody can throw out the pros, but somebody needs to throw out the cons. And then that's not just it. Let's then have a discussion about, you know, mitigating the cons. But um, I have a great example that I think you just heard for, for the first time, even though most of our stories, <laughs> we know. <laughs> so yeah. back in my banking days, a thousand years ago, uh, one of my clients was Harry Weiss, who um, long since passed away, but is a, a famous architect. And he was on the committee that was going to choose the design for the as yet to be built Vietnam Veterans Memorial in D.C. And m many people have now seen it. And it's amazing and touching and incredible. But Harry was late to that meeting. He was often late, as I recall, <laughs> but he was late to that meeting. And the committee of, I don't know, 10-ish people, um, sculpt sculptors, architects, artists, had already gone through a few designs and they were in the garbage. I, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but that's the way he tells it. They were in the garbage and he pulled them out of the garbage because he wasn't going to accept the, the view of the committee just because he was late. Um, he successfully argued for the, the memorial that we all see tonight, today, the, the big black wall with all the names on it um, and changed the no votes for the remaining people to a yes. And it's incredible. But, you know, he took the obligation to dissent um, to heart. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's a great story. And I've, I've read that, you know, on aircraft carriers, the lowest person has the obligation, if they notice something that's going to make the landing or take off of a plane dangerous, to say something. Or yeah, I hope so. <laughs> in a hospital room, you know, the lowest person has the obligation, if they see something, to say something. So what but I wanted you to talk about was your wife, Nancy, is a jury scholar and yes. has some some things to contribute to this very point about how you come yes. to good decisions. Yes, she does. So in a jury, the jury goes to the jury room. They're about to, you know, um, deliberate, come to a, you know, what could be the most important decision in the party's lives. So getting the search for truth really matters. And one way that's common and that you see in TVs and movies is what's called verdict driven, where right off the bat, they go around the room and ask people what their, you know, vote is. And her studies have shown, and there's a lot of other research that backs this up that she's uncovered, is that is not the best way for the search to conduct the search for truth. Because people get uh, sort of stuck on the opinion that they said publicly and they want to defend it and they haven't been able to consider everything and everybody's opinions when they're taking this first vote. Much better is what's called evidence driven. And in evidence driven, you don't even go around the table. What you do is you put a topic out on the table and let the group discuss it without in any way indicating how they feel about that topic. So a topic might be. What do we think is the strongest element of this case for each side? What do we think is the weakest element? What do we think this word means that we're supposed to be determining, you know, if it happened or not? What's, what's ambiguous? What are some things we're all uncertain is? Because we can always go back to the judge and ask for more uh, transcripts or uh, review some of the evidence. So you make the search for truth a group effort around what would we need to all agree that this is a fact and this is true. And that's why juries are unanimous. And yet they are able, despite the diversity of opinions that people have walking into the room, they're able to come to a single view of the truth because they really uh, ultimately get to this evidentiary driven way of deciding. It's very powerful. Yeah. And one of the reasons I think why that is so much better than, you know, walking around the room and saying innocent or, or uh, not, or not guilty or guilty is that when we take public stands, we all have a little stubborn streak, don't we? It is hard once you take a stand to take it back. It's, yeah. it's just, it's human nature. And, and in, a, in a corporate setting, for sure, though this probably also happens in juries. Well, when the EVP says something, it's given more weight often than, you know, the VP's voice, even though the VP may know a lot more about the subject. Oh. Okay. Well, I know we can go on for quite some time about <laughs> this, but. We could. So uh, use evidentiary method, have an obligation to dissent, and um, get back to work. I think we can both 
agree on that. <laughs> Bye. Bye.